Indian Airways. On today's program, we're glad to be interviewing our guest, Mary Catherine Nagel. We're going to have this interview with Abby Ibarra, a playwright actor, also a co-host of the series of the American Indian Airways titled Sacred Stage. Now, Mary Catherine Nagel received her bachelor's degree in Justice and Peace Studies at Georgetown University and later received her degree in Law from Tulane University Law School where she graduated summa cum laude. After graduating from law school, Nagel clerked for two federal judges at once in the United States District Court of the District of Nebraska. So, on that, her major works... A prominent cases she litigated was adoptive couple versus baby girl, also known as baby Victoria case, trial in 2013, which was held in the United States Supreme Court. She wrote a brief cite and cited the ICWA, which is the Indian Child Welfare Act, to keep a young native girl from being taken away from her birth father and being adopted by a white family. So it was during this law school that Nagel realized she wanted to become a native rights as a playwright. So Nagel is an alumni of the 2013 Emerging Writers Group, a prestigious program supported by the public theater for up-and-coming playwrights. So during her time, in the Emerging Writers Group, she wrote Manhattan, a play that received recognition from the groups that gave the William Sodayan Prize in, pro- in Playwriting and the Jane Chambers Playwriting Award. Silver of a Full Moon is one of her most successful works to date, having been performed in the Church Center of the United Nations and various law schools across the country, including Yale, Harvard, in NYU and Stanford. After being commissioned by the Arena Stage to write Sovereignty, she became the first Native American playwright to ever have their work featured in the venue, Northwestern University Press, while publishing Sovereignty. Her plays are numerous. We mentioned some of that here in the interview. So I wanted to welcome Mary Catherine Nagel and the co-host of this program, series called Sacred Stage. And the reason why we call it Sacred Stage is unlike the regular non-native performing arts or the stages, they are not sacred necessarily, but yet for native people, that story and that those different playwrights that we're interviewing talks about the emerging social justice issues as well as personal issues, historical and present, in regards to the 
ever-present sense of colonialization and also of recovery and sovereignty and of independence and the robust effort of new and up-and-coming playwrights and actresses and writers in order to perform in the United States as well as internationally. Once again, we feature in this interview by Abby Ibarra, Mary Catherine Nagel. Not only is she clever, but also she is a person to contend with in a sense of Native nations and the role they play into dealing with climate change, with first people sovereignty, and our ability to recover from our genocide. So once again, Mary Catherine Nagel. Welcome, Mary Catherine Nagel, playwright, author, attorney, renowned across the globe. Uh, thank you for being with us on uh, Bear Waves. We've uh, had a number of conversations that began with the idea of what is native theater and the st- what is you know how is native theater doing in the United States and I just want to ask you first off to get us you know how did you get started into playwriting and what impact has that had on your life as a result? Well, that's a great question. I didn't write my first play until I was in college, but I did a lot of theater growing up as a kid. I I acted in different plays and community events. Um, but I wrote my first play in college and continued writing from there. It was quite some time before I was really writing professionally. So I was writing plays that they were being done professionally. They were being done in communities, which was a wonderful, incredible experience. Uh, something that I still do to this day, even though um, I do have professional pr- productions, I continue to work with different communities to produce different performances and plays in, in different places. And being a playwright has has changed my life in, in profound ways. I think being able to share stories and tell stories in community is a powerful experience. It's healing, it's medicine, it's, it's an effective tool for trying to create social change. And I'm just very honored and thankful to be able to do it. My initial uh, entry into uh, Native theater, I've, I've been involved in entertainment since I was five, actually. And uh, it wasn't until I came out to the East Coast and I discovered William Yellowrobe, uh, who was a profound writer. And uh, he's passed on, but it, uh, growing up and, and thinking about uh, theater was hearing about lack of of Native writers, or was he one of those few people out there that maybe gave you some kind of, um, you know, impacted your life in a way that uh, you're, you're working today? Yeah, I think Bill Yellowrobe impacted, you know, anyone who's sort of in my generation um, who didn't just start doing Native theater yesterday. Remember, because things are exciting right now, and that's, and we're, there are unprecedented opportunities. I still don't think we're where we need to be, but um, you know, for the first time, seemingly ever, we've got professional theaters that are actually starting to produce plays by Native playwrights. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I think for the newest generation of Native theater artists, that might just seem like a given because it's happening. But being a part of the generation that was, was was you know, I started my work when the answer was 100% no. There were no theaters in New York, professional theaters outside of Amerinda or or other Native-centered theater groups that were professional, but were, were just Native people producing Native plays, right? When we're talking about off-Broadway or professional mainstream theaters, none of them 
we're producing plays by Native playwrights. And even when, and, and so when I moved to New York, that was the environment. And actually one of the first things that happened um, after I moved to New York was there was a production of Woodbones at the Public Theater. Now, and I say that, the, the Public Theater didn't specifically produce, they allowed another producing company to come in and show that play. And I say that because I don't think the Public Theater deserves credit for doing that. They still need to produce a Native play by a Native playwright. I hear that might be in the works, so hopefully that will happen. How good of them to allow, to give space and to allow another, a Native theater company, Amerinda, to come in and produce one of Bill Yellowrobe's plays. Um, getting to see a, a Bill Yellowrobe play at the public theater, even though the public theater wouldn't officially put it in their full season, was very impactful for me. Um, it was my first introduction to the Native theater community uh, when I saw Woodbones. Um, it was Woodbones, right? Was it Woodbones? It was, yes. It yes, Joe's, that's right. Joe's Club Pub. Yep. And, um, you know, it was very impactful. Um, I think because too, at that time, like I hadn't had a single play professionally produced ever, right? So seeing a Native play produced by a Native theater company was very impactful. And I think, I think pretty much everyone of my generation has been very impacted by Bill. Many of us personally, in terms of the way in which he, he always made an effort to mentor younger playwrights. And I think actually several other playwrights, even more so than me, I think, have a lot of important things to say about the role he played in shaping their careers and, and their lives. So with your plays now being actually produced at the public, uh, what do you feel is, is the strength of, of what Native theater has to offer uh, main theater, main stage theater? I mean, it, it, well, there's a lot of talk on both sides of the aisle of, of yeah, whether I mean, I, it's community theater or just Native theater or just American theater. Well, first of all, the public theater has never fully produced an actual play by Native playwright. They have workshopped productions. They've allowed other theater companies to come in and present a play like Amerinda did. They workshopped my play. I, and I'm thankful for that. I don't want to sound like I don't have gratitude for that. But they're producing basically play, they're producing plays by every other minority in the United States. And then shame on them. And they produced Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, which is a play that uses red face and dehumanized our people oh, horribly. Right. So you know, I think I've heard rumors and I can't say one of our dear friends may have a play there produced pretty soon and that would be phenomenal. But my God, how is it taken until 2022? And, and, and why does it matter? Well, theaters like the public are theaters that most Americans look to for entertainment. That's where they go to. That's where, you know, it's like Netflix, HBO, the public theater, Broadway. You know, these are, these are places where Americans go to hear stories. And so, if Native people are excluded from sharing stories in those circles, it doesn't mean we don't get to share our stories at all. It just means that our that the majority of Americans don't get to hear our stories. And that and that fact, I think, is one of the main reasons why we still face some of the highest rates of violence against our people, why we still have a legal regime that is perpetuating colonialism in a way that is quite harmful when it comes to tribal sovereignty, protecting sacred sites, protecting native religion. You know, all these things are related because the way we gain compassion for one another as humans is hearing and receiving each other's stories. So the exclusion of native people from that realm of storytelling has been historically very harmful. And that's why so many of us, Bill Yellowrobe, you know, Spider-Woman Theater, Suzanne Harjo, all these amazing people who came before us and so many of, and, and still walk with us have been fighting to, to change this because they understand that connection, right? And I think that 
we're starting to see, you know, what, how amazing is it that theaters like Arena Stage and Kansas City Rep and Oregon Shakespeare Festival and Portland Center Stage, you know, are starting to produce plays by Native playwrights, but it needs to become the norm, not the exception, right? Most American, you know, professional American theaters have never produced a play by a Native playwright still to this day. Well, Mary, if people want to read a little bit about you, you can go to the uh, the New Yorker. Mary Kay Nagel changes the story in court and on stage, which I, that article blew me away because not mm -hmm. only are you a playwright, but also a lawyer. Tell me how that intertwines. Uh, if somebody <laughs> reads the article, talks about the Supreme Court and murdering Miss Indigenous women, etc. How How do you put that all together? Tell us about that. You're listening to American Indian Airways, and we're interviewing Mary Catherine Nagel by Abby Ibarra and yours truly, Marcus Lopez, on the series of American Indian Airways, Sacred Stage. Now let's go back to the interview. Uh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> delicately. Uh, it's tough just because there's so much work to be done, especially on the legal side. The I'm a partner at a small law firm. We have a small dedicated team of um, mostly Native attorneys and, and a couple amazing non-Native allies that work with us. And we're really dedicated to restoring tribal sovereignty and safety for Native women. You know, we're working on the Violence Against Women Act reauthorization right now, which is literally in the Senate at this moment. We are waiting for a bipartisan VAWA to, to come out. We're very hopeful that it will. And that VAWA 2022 will build upon VAWA 2013 and restore additional categories of tribal criminal jurisdiction over non-Indian crimes. But like I said, these things that we're working to change, the legal, the fact that in 1978, the Supreme Court eliminated tribal criminal jurisdiction over crimes committed by non-Indians is not an accident. The fact that the Supreme Court said, tribes, you can't prosecute non-Indians who come onto your lands and rape and kill Native women in their own homes is the result of the exclusion of Native people from sharing stories. You, you can't turn a blind eye to the fact that Native women suffer the highest rates of domestic violence and sexual assault. You can't accept a legal regime that allows them to be raped and killed in their own homes unless you've dehumanized them. And the plays like Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson and all the use of red face that predates Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson at the public, you know, all those stories and, the, and then couple them with the incredible absence of authentic Native stories has taught the American public, including people who sit on the Supreme Court, to dehumanize us. And that dehumanization has resulted in a very violent legal regime for Native women and Native children and Native people, including our two-spirit relatives. So it is, to me, they are connected at, they're, they're, they're so connected, you can't disentangle them. And so as a lawyer, I write briefs in the Supreme Court. In fact, we're filing one on the 18th you know, on behalf of my client, the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. And it does, it is about a case uh, that involves violence against a Native woman. Pretty much all the cases that we file in the Supreme Court do relate to violence against Native women somehow. That's, that's the main issue I'm working on as an attorney. And I think that, you know, when people ask me, how do we solve, how do we solve this problem? I do think it's twofold. I think that it's, it's, we got to change the law, but you can't change the law until you change the hearts and the minds of the people who create the law and who perpetuate the law. And in order to do that, entertainment and storytelling is one of the most effective ways to teach people, hey, these people over here, they're real, they still exist, and they're human. And that is the real, I think, power of, of our Native theater and our Native storytelling. Yeah, that's an incredible story, how you intertwine uh, the realities of today, the 
the, the, the colonization that continues, especially uh, with the violence against women and the Violence Against Women Act, how it's been politicized uh, and, and, and fought over. Uh, and if, if, the, if the American public knew and, uh, and thank, thankfully some of your plays talk to that issue, that's, that's, that's where your legal and the storytelling becomes reality for people. That's, that's, a, that's a great motive for plays. Thank you. I was at New York when that play Murder, Murder, or whatever it's called, and I was on the stage with a friend of mine. Um, uh, we were in the UN, and we said, let's check it out. And I never seen such, such a horrible play in my life. And I know that I was talking to Ed, who's from New Mexico. He's, he's, um, we were there for the UN and this uh, seventh generation from indigenous people with that group of people with with all the all that went with us and it was devastating and you talk about that devastation on your latest play on the um broadway world media on the which you wrote intertwined the struggle of middle-aged or excuse me a middle school stephen and uh the play was about the chief standing bear which abby's you played Chief Standing Bear, <laughs> and forced off his uh, farmland. But that was, it's an indication to me that what now up and coming people like yourself, that, and the new young, the new youngsters, I would say, because I'm a, from the past, you might say, but yet how your story intertwines that history that needs to be retold. Talk about that new play, any new plays coming up? Oh, I, I appreciate that. And always appreciate the opportunity to talk about my work. You know, yes, Abby was a star in uh, my play Return to Niagara, which we did at the Rose Theater in, uh, gosh, that would have been 2019. And that's a children's theater in Omaha. And Return to Niagara tells the story of, of Chief Standing Bear from the Ponca tribe, but really it follows the story of one of his descendants, who's a contemporary young boy who is in middle school and who is ridiculed for his long hair and then forced or, or ordered to cut his hair by the school district because it violates their hair policy, which many school districts have. They don't allow boys to have long hair. And um, he says, well, but this is my hair is who I am. I'm not cutting my hair. And the school district basically tells him, well, then you'll be expelled from school. And he says, fine. And decides he sort of in the play, he starts to have these flashbacks where he actually like sees his grandpa, great great grandpa, Chief Standing Bear, on the Trail of Tears, um, Bear Shield, who is Chief Standing Bear's son. So it's, you start having these flashbacks back to like the late 1800s and the 1870s, specifically when right after the Ponca were removed, Bear Shield passed away and died uh, tragically. Um, we think from malaria, but there were so many illnesses that that came about because of the inhumane, uh, dehumanizing treatment of the people who were forced on Trails of Tears in terms of. You know, lack of shelter, lack of food, um, the challenging climate when you're and just being forced to to march hundreds and hundreds of miles at once. His son died, Bearshield died in what is now Oklahoma, what was then Indian Territory, and Chief Stanford promised that he would take his son's bones back up to the Niobrara River, where their ancestral homeland is, and bury him with their ancestors. And so the modern day descendant of Chief Standing Bear is very inspired by this story because once Chief Standing Bear decided to do that, he was arrested and imprisoned 
because he violated federal law. He left the reservation in Indian territory to walk 500 miles home to bury his son with their ancestors. And this is a true story. And when it, and when it went to federal court in 1879, um, the issue was because Chief Standing Bear filed a writ of habeas corpus. And the, the habeas corpus statute says all persons who are unlawfully detained basically have a right to come before the court and the sovereign that's detaining them has to explain, well, here's here's why we're detaining this person. So Chief Standing Bear filed that and the U.S. attorney responded with, well, Indians aren't persons under the law. Standing Bear can't sue under the writ. And the whole debate was whether or not Indians are persons. And so that isn't quite the same legal debate that our, our young child in the contemporary scenes, Stephen, is facing. Um, his issue is, is certainly whether or not it violates his right, his constitutional right to religion and free speech to, to keep his hair um, the way, you know, his First Amendment rights um, to not have to cut his hair. Uh, but he is very inspired by what Chief Standing Bear did and, and standing up. And, and, and so Abby played the, the sort of, we go back and forth in these times, these flashbacks, Stephen's modern day father and Stephen's grandfather, Chief Standing Bear from the 1870s. And it sort of, you know, shows, shows some of the connections between what, you know, rights Native people were fighting for in the 1800s and, and the rights that we continue to fight for today. And the play, once again, is titled? Return to Nyabrera. And Abby, last question, please, and finalize this uh, wonderful conversation. I, I still remember some of the ponka. Ponka mawaton si use no e. Iri onglei, utang de onglei, du jiwita, ke monson ke oblei, unde monei. So <laughs> I love that. It was, it was a wonderful story uh, and, a, and a wonderful way for history. I, I saw the faces of, 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 the, of the children uh, just enthralled. Uh, I, I never saw a theater that full of students watching a play that was historical in nature and also timely with the, with the, with the young Stephen. And it, that impact, it, it, is that what you're talking about, the changing mm -hmm. the narrative for, for the next generation of Americans so we can respect all of us as human beings and not, not um, you know, figures from, from some cartoon or from a movie that Hollywood produced in the 30s? Is, that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. And what you bring up, Abby, I mean, you know, it's funny when I set out to be a playwright, I, I'm focused on the Supreme Court and I'm always thinking like, you know, theaters in D.C. that justices go to and theaters like Yale Rep where maybe some Yale law students might go see a play and then go clerk on the Supreme Court and share the message. Right. But what was so powerful about what we did at the Rose Theater is we were sharing that story with children. And you just think about the power of being able to teach a child, hey, the Native people nearby you, you know, near you here, like the Ponca and the Omaha and the Winnebago and the Santee Sioux, you know, everyone that's, these are all human people. Like that's not, you know, a message that unfortunately kids in grade school get, right? Like they get, hey, Indians are Halloween costumes. They don't really, real Indians don't exist anymore, right? They all, the real Indians died out in the 1800s. Um, they've actually statistically shown that, I think it's something like 82% or maybe it's 86% of all uh, K through 12 curriculum don't teach a single story about a native person after 1900. So for most of the, of the K through 12 curriculum in, this, in the United States, the idea is that Indians are things from the past. They're part of our sort of like Sacagawea and Pocahontas folklore, but Indians are not real people today. Native people, indigenous people are not here today. And that's a very damaging education um, for, for the non-Native people and for the Native people, because 
Um, that erasure, I think, is is one of the real harmful, one of the most harmful ingredients in 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 terms of all, why we have so many challenges in Indian country today. A lot of it stems from the erasure, and so being able to to share that story with so many grade school children and high school students and just kids. Um, and and their responses, you know, and I know you guys did some talkbacks and the questions they had. And, you know, you when I just when I think about the opportunity to educate kids and, you know, my hope is I know COVID's been a real setback, but I, I really, you know, I hope that children's theaters across the United States and high schools and middle schools will think about incorporating plays by Native playwrights into you know, middle schools and high schools usually produce plays, you know, producing plays by Native playwrights, you know, or or having students read them, you know, or children's theaters producing plays, you know, there, and and all of us Native playwrights should think about, I know, you know, some folks like Larissa Fasthorse have been, has, you know, she's been writing children's plays for years um, and is quite good at it. But, you know, I hadn't thought about writing a children's play until um, the Rose approached me and said, hey, what would you think of writing a children's play? And I thought, oh God, can I? I don't even know if I can, you know, because I'd never done it before. And and really, like, I just made the protagonist a kid. And I thought about how, you know, our 10-year-old kid kind of behaves. And we have a, we had a 10 and 13-year-old at the time. And I just sort of thought about that. And and um, as long as you write a kid truthfully, as a kid, you know, like, kids, kids get it. You know, we didn't dumb anything down in the production, you know, like, and maybe some of those kids were like, I'm not sure what habeas corpus is. Okay, a lot of adults don't know what it is either. You know, you just, you, as long as you're going through it from a kid's eyes, they, I mean, they really, they're with you every step of the way. And in, in many instances, they understand things on a deeper level than the adults do who come see the show. So it was, it was really an incredible, incredible experience. We can go on with this discussion. <laughs> uh, and I would love to, we're speaking with Mary Catherine Nagel who is not only a person of interest, of knowledge and wisdom, my goodness, at a young age. I know during the 60s, and Abby can attest to that, is that our prayers, all the people that are gone now, all the medicine people and the, both men and women, prayed for our younger people to speak out in a different variety of ways, whether it be music, poetry, art, theater, performing arts, so on and so forth, books and and definitely, Mary Catherine Nagel, you are answering our prayers. Mm. And um, just one last question, and then that is, what's your message to the young people now that are listening to this or even looking at some of your plays or even some of the plays that other great people uh, like Bill has already put forth? What's your message? My message would be that your story matters. And just because you haven't seen your story shared or a story similar to yours in your in your school, in your community, doesn't mean it can't be done. It may be hard. There may be times where you feel, you know, I know um, when I ran the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program at Yale for several years before Madeline Sayet took over, at one point Yale rep had never still had never produced a play by a Native playwright but they produced a play that had some really horrific red face in it. And I remember one of our native students just crying afterwards because he's like, what am I doing here? They won't produce a single play by native playwright, but I have to go sit in an audience and watch everyone laugh at the dehumanization of our people on stage. And what I just want to say to our youth is, you know, first of all, that is real trauma. You know, when you experience a hurt like that, talk to an elder, talk to your community, but, but don't give up hope 
that your story can be shared. It deserves to be shared. Your story should be told and keep writing, keep creating whatever you're, whatever, however you share stories, whether it's writing songs, whether it's being a long distance runner, right? We've seen amazing native runners highlight the issue of murdered and missing indigenous women and girls by running. Whatever your way of sharing is, do it. And don't worry if you don't have an example of how a native person has been able to do it in your community before, because probably there is a, you know, an elder or someone with experience who's, who's done some of those things before. It just hasn't been, the community hasn't been paying attention, but those things are starting to change, right? And we're having a lot of doors open that didn't open before. And I just really want to encourage the youth to, to not lose hope because I do think we're very blessed to live at a time where, where doors are being opened that weren't being opened before and that there is support across Indian country for, for our native youth who are sharing their stories. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Abby, for connecting with Mary. Mary, I know you're busy. Good luck on all your work and keep healthy, both you and Abby. Uh, we created the sacred stage and where we reflect people like yourselves, Mary, and uh, thank you so much for the interview. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's been an honor. You're listening to American Indian Airways. We just had an interview with Abby Ibarra, with Mary Catherine Nagel, which was a very interesting discussion we had on, on our series here on American Indian Airways called Sacred Stage. Now let's turn to some music. I'm going to play some pieces in which I give you some idea of Native experience and also Native talent. So enjoy. Your music here, you're listening to American Indian Airways. Now let's turn to some music. Enjoy. It's cheaper that way. It's cheaper that way. It's cheaper that way. 
big business decision, big business decision, big business decision, savings and loan, savings and loan, savings and loan, trillion dollar debt, trillion dollar debt, trillion dollar debt. And there's tax man at the door, tax man at the door, tax man at the door, telling me I gotta pay, telling me I gotta pay, telling me I gotta pay, and banker man. Has the D to the land, the D to the land, the D to the land.
shared a half hour of my life this morning with Rami, an Igbo man from northern Nigeria, who drove me in his taxi to the airport. Chicago rose up as a mechanical giant, with soft insides buzzing around to keep it going. We were parked to spin. Rami told the story of his friend, who one morning around seven, a morning much like this one, was filling his taxi with gas. As the sun broke through the gray morning, he heard his mother tell him the way she had told him when he was a young boy, how the sun had once been an Igbo and returned every morning to visit relatives. These memories were the coat that kept him warm on the streets of ice. Interrupted by a young man who asked him for money, a young man who was like so many he saw in his daily journey onto the street to collect fares. Oh no, sorry man, I don't have anything I can give you, he said as he patted the pockets of his worn slacks, his thin nylon jacket. He turned back to the attention of filling his gas tank. What a beautiful morning. Same sun, the same Ebo looking down on him in the streets of the labyrinth, far, far from home. And just like that, he was gone from a gunshot wound at the back of his head, the hit of a casual murderer. As we near the concrete plains of O'Hare, I imagine the spirit of Rami's friend. At the door of his mother's house, the bag of dreams in his hands dripping with blood. His mother's tears make a river of red stars to an empty moon. The whole village mourns with her. The ritual of tears and drums summon the ancestors who carry his spirit into the next world. There he can still hear the drums of his relatives as they accompany him on his journey. He must settle the story of his murder, or he will come back a ghost. The smallest talking drum is an insistent heart, leads his spirit to the killer. A young Jamaican immigrant who was traced to his apartment because his shirt of blood was found by the police, thrown off in the alley with his driver's license in the pocket. He searches for his murderer in the bowels of Chicago and finds him shivering in a cramped jail cell. He could hang him or knife him, and it would be called suicide, and it would be the easiest thing. But his mother's grief moves his heart. He hears the prayers of the young man's mother, and there is always a choice, even after death. Favorite name and calls him his brother. The young killer is then no longer shamed, but filled with remorse and cries all the cries he has stored for a thousand years. He learns to love himself as he never could, because his enemy, who has every reason to destroy him, loves him. That's a story that follows me everywhere and won't let me sleep. From Tallahassee grounds to Chicago. To my home with the Rio Grande, it sustains me through these tough distances. 
and you're listening to American Indian Airways. Some music by the first one was John Prudell, Johnny Damas and Me, 1994 album. And then the second one I played was Joy Hargill and Poetic Justice, a post-colonial tale from Letters from the End of the 20th Century. I thought that was very apropos with this interview we had with Mary Catherine Nagel, especially about her plays. So now let's turn to some more music here on the American Indian Airways. So stay tuned. We shall live again 
mind, did you, queen? Yeah, that's my most McGee. I know, I know ballers, I know chiefs, I know riders from the east, I know educated natives down to pick it in the streets, middle fingers to police, fuck you, we come in peace, I know red skin hippies that be giving me the creeps, I know beauty, I know beast, I know savages and freaks, and I know a couple cousins even bougie than me, no, 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 ain't a lick, bougie native, yes indeed, art exhibit to the club, and we roll it, 20D. Copper on my neck, gold on my ring, feather on my hat, skin stitch chin. Hundred warriors on my back, daily drumming when I sing. Man, there ain't no way around it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bougie native. I got turquoise on my wrist. We them bougie natives. Five rings up on my fist. We them bougie natives. Big hat with the brim. We them bougie natives. Got that custom made bling. We them bougie natives. New city, new sweet grass, new sage. We them bougie natives. My knowledge in my brain. We them bougie natives. New city, new sweet grass, new sage. We them bougie natives. You can holler at my name. is over. And that concludes our program here on the American Engine Airways. We'd like to thank our guest, Mary Catherine Nagel, also Abby Ibarra for co-hosting the series on American Engine Airways, Sacred Stage. Also our musical guest, Aragon Star, John Trudell, Joe Harjo, and lastly, the two last songs are Robbie Robinson music for the Native American, and that's the album. And that one track was Ghost Dance 1994. In addition to that, last one was a tribe called Red Indian Sticks, and that was our music guest. Also, we want to thank Blackfire for ending our show. So, for Larry Smith. I'm your host for this hour, Marcus Lopez. We want to thank you for listening to the American Indian Airways and have a good evening. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds, nor the hands that hold the chains.